our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, where else can we come to hear words that pertain not only to this life, but also the life to come? To who else could we go to learn the most important things that need to be learned while we are here for this brief time so that we can be prepared for the time to come? Heavenly Father, we ask for a rich measure of thy spirit here this afternoon as we would look into thy word together. If it is dependent on the one who stands here, this gathering is in vain. But Heavenly Father, we trust that thou art our unseen guest, that thou, Lord Jesus, art here among us as thy word promises, and that thou indeed will teach us from thy word. And we need only to humble ourselves and to sit at thy feet for learning. Be with those that are going through difficulties, Heavenly Father, those that are suffering from chronic conditions, those that are grieving the loss of loved ones, those that are dealing with uh, hardships and surgeries and recovery and some who are old and some who are very young. Heavenly Father, they are all known to thee. And so we lift them up in prayer unto thee now, knowing that thou, can, thou canst do more than any human physician is able be with them, Heavenly Father, and provide for them. Be with those that are spreading thy word throughout this world, perhaps in the face of great persecution, and let thy word go forth in power and in simplicity until thou wilt return. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we were listening to the word this morning, uh, a particular passage of scripture came to my mind, and I'd like to read from there with the Lord's help. It's found in Paul's letter to the Philippians, the third chapter. Philippians chapter 3. I'd like to actually start reading with the seventh verse. Philippians chapter 3, beginning with verse 7. But what things were gain to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. That I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, 
and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an ensample. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and his glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. We heard this morning about love, and not just any kind of love, but the love of Christ, and how that will make us behave, live, in ways that are very different from the way the world behaves and lives. This afternoon, we've read together a section of scripture that talks about priorities and vision. that talks about a reckoning of past works and what is to come. I purposely didn't read the first six verses because I didn't want us to frame this in our minds in direct connection with the life of Paul and his super-religious upbringing. I think the application is actually much broader than just that. Focus instead on these words. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. What's gained to you? What were the important things before your conversion, if you are converted, or if you, are not, if you have not yet surrendered your life to God, what are the important things to you now? What are your aims? What are your ambitions? What are your goals? What's your bucket list? I can stand here in front of you and on the authority of scripture, I can say to you those things are loss. They don't have a zero value. They have a negative value. They may not be bad or evil things in and of themselves also. I don't want you to think that I'm talking about sinful or evil things. Your aims, your goals, your passion may have 
noble overtones. Or they may even be a little bit more down to earth. Maybe it's just as simple as, as finding someone to love. Or finding a career that brings fulfillment, that challenges you, that you find interesting. The problem is, it is outside of Christ. And in order to fulfill those, to, to follow those aims and those goals, where we exclude Christ from following those aims or goals, it will lead you into sin. It will produce loss in your life. It may not seem so at, at the moment. That clarity only comes, I think, once you are in Christ and you realize that the effort, the stress, the thought that you put into those things were wasted. Why do I say that? Because outside of Christ, when it's, when it's just ourself and our goals, whatever they may be, Scripture tells us that why do you take thought for the morrow? You can't turn one hair of your head black or white. There's so little that you can control. And you delude yourself by thinking that you are actually on the throne, that what you are that that your, uh, you can bring about your aims and your goals. The other thing that you grossly overestimate is your ability to find happiness on your own. Human happiness is much like chasing the end of a rainbow. You never reach it. You have the goal. Once I find this, or once I do this, or once I experience this, then I will be happy. And when I arrive, you find out that you haven't really arrived, that that happiness is still elusive. It must be over the next hilltop. The reason that Paul could say these things but what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ, is because he had found sufficiency in the one thing, the one and only thing that will truly grant sufficiency. The only thing that will satisfy. And that thing is totally outside of our hands. What we don't realize is that we are actually very poor judges of what will make us happy. Because we don't really understand ourselves. We think that by giving ourselves to a career, to a relationship, to an experience, to a set of experiences, to a goal, will bring happiness when God has designed us in a way that happiness will only be found when we lose ourselves in Him. Any pursuit outside of Christ then becomes something that takes away from that pursuit of happiness that can only be found in Him. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. There was one thing, one aim that Paul had, 
And it was a, it was a pursuit, it was a passion that was all-encompassing, and it was the only thing he found worthwhile in this world. And that was the knowledge of Christ Jesus. But this knowledge was not an intellectual knowledge. This was a knowledge of a personality, of a person, of one that had saved him, who he found to be the source of all things and the fulfillment for all things. And the only thing that counted for Paul was to excel in this knowledge, to know more. I've shared it before, but I'll briefly touch on it again. For those of you that are like me, every so often I'd come across an interesting thing, a subject, a hobby, a whatever it was, that became fascinating to me, and it became captivating. And, and for, uh, at least for a while, I could never seem to sort of satisfy the desire to know more about whatever that thing was, to experience more of it. But it faded. It faded away. Eventually, that fire burned itself out, and I was just left with the ashes. And I had to go find something else. This is the loss that I'm talking about. This is the wasted effort that I'm talking about, because it couldn't produce happiness. And for a moment, it seemed like it was going somewhere. For a moment, there was something to it. It seemed like it, there was a, a, a captivating element to it that was, that was uh, exciting, energizing. But it wasn't until I, too, found the Savior that I found something that has never worn out for me. As I have pursued Christ and the knowledge of Christ, it is a subject that never grows boring. That's not to say that my pursuit of Christ has been a, just a straight, linear line. At times, the desires of the flesh, things around me, distract me. And for a while, I turn away from it, but I find the same thing again, that that is loss. It's lost to me, and I need to return. I need to get back to the thing that the only thing that I have found that has ever really fulfilled and lived up to the promise that it made. I can say with Peter, Lord, where shall I go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, something that reaches beyond this life into the life to come. There are things that I've discovered as I have pursued this. And this excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. One of the byproducts of it is this. I find the more that I know about him, the, the, the less I know. He's that great. With other interests that I've had, I, I would throw myself into reading and, and, and researching and, and whatever it was. But I found it got to a point where I reached a saturation point. It just, I, I, I knew as much as I really kind of wanted to know or even could practically digest, and then the interest began to wane. But God is eternal. There's no limit to him. The more I find out, the more I find how little I know of him and how awesome he really is. I think it's Psalm 34 that says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. 
And that may sound a little bit odd. If God's so great, why do you need to magnify him? Well, if you think about a telescope and you think about something far in the distance, when you look through a, 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 a magnifying glass, you're taking something small and making it appear larger than it is. But when you look through a telescope, you're looking at something that appears small, but in fact is much, much larger than you, than you really realize. And so when you look through the telescope, you start approximating what the true size of that thing that you're looking at is. I remember the experience of driving out west with my parents and going to the Rockies, and we were about two days away from the Rockies. You could already see them in the distance, and it seemed like they were close. But there were still two more days of driving. And you realize how great they really are. That's the kind of magnify the Lord with me that the psalmist is talking about. You're never going to get bored or tired of a God that is that great. Everywhere you look, there's a new scene. Every, every uh, new glimpse brings a new delight. And when I look away, when I become distracted by the baubles of this world, it's to my shame. And I realize how, how, how pitiful, how nothing they are compared to the greatness of the God that I serve. His word is only the starting point of that. The Bible is amazing. I'm thankful for it. I read it often. But the Bible is not God. He's so much greater than this. Luke himself wrote, if, 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 if every word was to be recorded just of Christ's ministry alone, the books of the world wouldn't be able to contain him. How are you going to contain the God of the universe in a book? This is, this is like a keyhole through which we gaze at the immensity of God. This is why Paul could say the pursuit of anything else is lost. It's taking away from the most important thing. That's how great God is. The most sublime experience in art, the most delicious meal you will ever taste, the most beautiful view or vista you could take in, the awesomeness of space. And we just had a bunch of billionaires do a day trip there and back. Nothing compared to the immensity of God because you don't even see the eternal aspect of him. You are only looking at the temporal. Once you look beyond that, then you are beginning to see. And this is what Paul was talking about. This is why he could say such extreme things. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. As I have learned to follow God, as I have begun to wonder at after him, as I have begun to scratch the surface on the excellency of the knowledge of Christ and who he is, I found there's something else that I've learned. Paul says, For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. I'd like to skip to verse 10 for a moment. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. That doesn't sound like bliss, does it? That doesn't sound like something that would 
be worthy of an all-consuming passion? I mean, who likes suffering? Nobody. We have a headache, we take an aspirin. If it's worse, there's some, there's some heavier drugs that can dull the pain. The fellowship with Christ will also teach us the, the benefit the benefit of suffering. It says of Christ that he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. When we realize that this current world and its allures are a distraction, a, a loss, something that will take us away from the excellency of the knowledge of Christ, we're in a good spot. We're seeing clearly. We're on the road, really, to fulfillment and happiness. You know, much like the, the, the allegory, for those of you that haven't read it, please do, Pilgrim's Progress by Paul Bunyan. Vanity Fair was a distraction about halfway through the journey to the celestial city. And the, the point was to distract the pilgrims to stay there. And it was like a fair. There was, I mean, it's ironic, of course, that, not so ironic, I guess, that there's a magazine named after that place in Pilgrim's Progress. If you ever wondered why Vanity Fair is named Vanity Fair, read Pilgrim's Progress, you'll find out. It was tongue-in-cheek. But the irony is lost on us now because we don't even know the source material anymore. But it was a distraction on, on, on that halfway through that journey, and you would never reach the celestial city if you stayed in Vanity Fair. Suffering becomes desirable when it is in pursuit of a worthwhile goal. Why? It sharpens us. It removes from us those things that are unnecessary. The things that are distractions. No one ever formed good character by being comfortable. You know, when a, when, a, when a baby's newborn, they need everything. They need to be swaddled if they're cold. When they're too warm, they need to be unwrapped. When they're hungry, they need to be fed. When they're dirty, they need to be changed and washed. They can do very little. But we expect that period of life to eventually end. We expect the child to grow up. We expect that child, you know, when, we're very, when they're very small, we try to protect them from every danger, but we expect there to come a point where the child will be exposed to danger. They're going to experience things for themselves. They're going to experience both the pain of failure and the joy of success. And God has designed it that in this fallen world, suffering is the tool that he uses to sharpen us to refine us. What I've noticed, I, I'm in a period of a little bit of uncertainty right now with, um, uh, as far as the future goes, uh, the pandemic hasn't been great for our, the business that I'm part of. But I can definitely say that the uncertainty and the stress that comes with that is an incredible sharpening tool 
that God has used on my own life, that has cut away from me those things that were extraneous, that has pushed me outside of my comfort zone to a point where I'm relying more heavily on him, calling on him more, conscious of his presence day by day, hour by hour. I've been working alone at home, for those that know what's been going on. My, my family's in the States, and I've been working on some renovation projects, and I'm up ladders, and I've been on rooftops, and, you know, danger makes us pray. I'm careful to be prayerful when I'm up on the ladder and not to take chances. I don't want to be foolhardy. There's no one around if, if, I, if I hurt myself. So I call out to my Heavenly Father, and the byproduct of that has been, again, not comfortable, but a sharpening of focus and a further delight in what God is doing in my life so I can say with Paul, those other things I count but dung. The point is not the renovation, of course. The point is the formation of the character and the pursuit of the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. Be very wary of your own desire for comfort. It will keep you from God's blessings, and it will keep you from maturing. It's like if you're hungry, just drinking lots of water, and you can fill your stomach, and it temporarily maybe feels like you're full, but it doesn't really do anything about the real hunger. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law. I love the way that the Apostle Paul writes this. The point is not personal striving. The point is not a personal best. Then we would have something to glory in. The knowledge of Christ is, is an immersion into him. It's it's, it's, it's being in him, seeing things as he sees them, valuing the things that he values and hating the things that he hates. It's the sweet spot. It's where you want to be. It's the place where you will find maximum delight in this world. This is why it also says of Christ, he, he learned obedience by the things that he suffered for the sake of the joy that lay before him. When you are immersed in Christ, you no longer are conscious of yourself because your eyes are so full of him. We can say with John the Baptist, I must decrease, but he must increase. Because that is God's will, and I find delight in that. 
as there is less of, not my personality, it's not like we become some kind of robot or, or, or as the Buddhists would have it, we attain nirvana, a state of kind of nothingness, of absorption. It's our personality and who we are finds its greatest expression and fulfillment in him. That's what it becomes. And that, that pursuit is the only pursuit that's worthwhile here. And the best part of it is it will continue into eternity. It begins here. This is really what heaven is. People have these weird ideas. They think it's something about like sitting around on clouds with harps or something like that, the way you see it in the cartoons. No. It's the unending pursuit of God. And it begins here. And if you do not fully engage in that pursuit here already, you're losing out. You're losing out. You are robbing yourself of fulfillment and happiness. I'm using the word happiness. Really, it probably should be joy. Because happiness is kind of shallow. Happiness tends to be circumstantial. It's, uh, I'm happy when I'm here, or I'm happy when I'm that person. When I'm not uh, with that person, and when I'm not with them, then I'm not happy. Or when I'm not there, I'm not happy. That's not it. Joy is, is something that's got an element of fulfillment to it, of satisfaction. And even if circumstances are, are less than ideal, you still can experience full joy, maximum joy. This is why Paul could say in whatever state he was, he learned to be content. Because as long as he was in Christ, it didn't matter if he was in a prison cell or a free man. Everything was working to bring about the excellency of the knowledge of Christ in him. And lest you would think that this is some kind of a special elite Christian status, you know, maybe you can't fully relate to some of the things that I'm saying right now. Maybe your life as a believer is characterized more by missteps and failures than it is by triumphs and victory. The wonderful thing about God is that he exists, one of his attributes is that he exists outside of time. He is eternal. So the past doesn't matter. If you make that change today, if you purpose to seek for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, heaven can begin for you right here, right now. It requires no delay. Your past failures are not a barrier to what I'm talking about. You don't have to work off a debt before you break even and now you can start uh, accruing credit with God. It doesn't work like that. He is timeless. He looks for the heart that is pursuing him. And Paul writes here, I love the man for this. He says, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. I'm not quite there yet. But this one thing I do, I said, okay, great, Paul. You're not there yet. Tell us. Tell us what we need to do then, because I'm not there yet either. He says, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Guess what? Everybody can do that. 
it begins with conversion, and after that, if you do this, if you forget about the things that are behind and press forward to the mark, you will experience heaven already here on earth. You will experience the joy and the fulfillment of that pursuit. But if you go back, if you go back to the things that are behind you, if you return to the kinds of worldly entertainment and pursuits that, that held you before, if you return to sin, if you return to addiction, if you return to uh, old ways of thinking, of anger, of malice to other people, of looking down on people, if you take your eyes off of Christ, you, like Peter on the waves, will sink. But the good thing is, the moment that you cry out, Lord, save me, he's there to pull you up again so you can start again to forget those things that are behind and to press forward. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same things. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an ensample. Anyone who's been walking with Christ for even a relatively short period of time should at least in some area of their life be able to say, come follow me. Do what I'm doing. We should be able to say with Apostle Paul, without a trace of pride, I haven't reached it yet, but this one thing I'm doing, I'm forgetting those things that were behind me, and I'm pressing forward. If you cannot say that, There is something very wrong with your Christian life. If you're still playing with the things of the world, if you're still toying with sin, you're going to be miserable. I can tell you that. Fulfillment, joy, will only be found in the unending pursuit of God. May the Lord add whatever was lacking to what was said. Would a brother please... So with what I've said, you may draw the conclusion that the Christian life is a solitary one, that it's your pursuit of Christ and the knowledge of him. That's not a full understanding. As we heard this morning, God is love. Love requires an object. You cannot love alone. So God saw fit that Christ's body would remain here on earth, even though he physically resurrected. His body is the church. And the wonderful thing about the church is that it is designed for all of us together to grow in this knowledge. Till we all, Scripture says, grow into the fullness of Christ. That's something we do together. There are others that encourage us along the way. Hopefully you've been encouraged this afternoon to consider the things of Christ as the primary, the all-consuming aim of your life, and that those other things would drop away and that you would find the fulfillment that you're looking for. 
We all have many brothers and sisters we can think of that have been encouragements to us. Some maybe that have already passed on to their reward. They have helped encourage us to focus on what is really important. There's been bad examples too. And Paul even includes them here. He says, for many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. I'd like to leave you with a question as we conclude. Are you an enemy of the cross of Christ? Do you shy away from the suffering that God is trying to lead you through to perfect his image in you as he perfected his son? What describes you best? What Paul was saying about himself, that he counted all those things but dumb? Or can it be said of you that your God is your belly, you glory in shame, worldly entertainments, questionable things on the internet maybe? Mind earthly things, money, career, fame, job, whatever. What characterizes you? Are you an enemy of the cross of Christ? Or are you seeking for the excellency of the knowledge of him? That's tough. I have to think about this for myself. I'm not saying this as a one standing here in a wooden tub lecturing you. I say this for myself. What defines me? Because what I do defines me, not what I say. That's the hardest thing about preaching. People have asked me that before. What's the hardest thing about preaching? The hardest thing is when you step down from this pulpit realizing what you said and realizing that you're accountable for it. I need to look at myself now and say, where is my focus? Am I actively avoiding suffering or, or privation, just eliminating things from my life that are distracting me? Or is my focus really, truly eternal? And am I striving, I'm not having apprehended yet, but striving, pressing forward to that mark, to that target. Nothing is going to distract me from that. May the Lord help us to remember these things in the upcoming week. On Sunday, it's easy to be focused, be spiritual. What happens during the week when someone bumps us, when, when circumstances are less than optimal? What then? Let's remember these things and take encouragement from our brother, the Apostle Paul. The Lord add whatever was lacking to what was said. This concludes our service.